This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So what was your favorite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam with the snorkeling and the helicopter ride. The no. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No. Your favourite thing was. Radio Wolfgang. Huh. Well, what's that? The app. You, you really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay. Cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite. Still, yeah. That's. It's just. You're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream, right? The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. So we're here in Swansea at the Grand Grand Theatre. The Grand Theatre. Um, we're not in the Grand Theatre bit. We're in a, in a kind of small studio at the back. Um, but we're about to do Scienceish Live again. <laughs> Just used to it, aren't we? Really, the kind of adulation, the huge crowds. Yeah, I've not actually seen anyone here for it yet, but I assume that everyone's just sort of lurking. Um, it'll be big. I mean, obviously, it'll be big. Most most of Swansea will be here shortly. Yeah, I mean, it'll be absolutely huge. Science ish live presents. Science fans, please welcome your hosts, Rick Edwards and Dr. Michael Brooks. Hi, smashed it. Say hello. Hello. That's the point you get from Michael. Short and to the point. Um, we had some uh, some guests actually up on stage with us last week. Um, and when our last guest came up to talk about internet security and who owns our data, because um, we were talking about Enemy of the State, very fine Will Smith film, um, Michael made our guest feel incredibly welcome. But the first thing that he said to her was, no one really gives a shit about this though, do they? Um, no hello. Uh, no, thanks for joining us. Just no one gives a shit about what you're going to talk about. Like and I said, short you, and to the point. That is what you get from Dr. Michael Brooks. Um, he is, he goes for the jugular. Um, he has almost no empathy. Um, he might, he might be a psychopath. 
So that's Michael Brooks. Uh, this is all stuff that you'll obviously know if you listen to the podcast. Um, if you don't, why are you here? To be fair... No, please don't leave. Swansea on a Wednesday, <laughs> Swansea on a Wednesday night is probably not popping off, is it? Um, this, uh, so those of you who haven't listened to the show, this is how it works. We take uh, a work of fiction, so a film or a book or a play. Um, has it ever been a play, Michael? It's never, ever a play. Why is that? Because we don't really like plays We don't much. like plays. We find them boring. Yeah. Uh, plays, plays are definitively boring. Um, so we take a, a film or a book uh, and we unpick the science within it by asking three, hopefully, searching questions. Although, just now, we spoke to uh, a journalist lady who said, why don't you do TV shows? Yeah, and we thought actually we could do, yeah, yeah, yeah. we could do a TV show, but we could. It's thinking out um, of the box, so as we it might, were. We might one day do a TV show. Um, but this evening, we're going to be looking at Spike Jones' uh, 2013 dystopian romance, kind of? It is a romance. Uh, her. Uh, have a go on this. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system, OS1. We'd like to ask you a few basic questions before the operating system is initiated. This will help create an OS to best fit your needs. Okay. Would you like your OS to have a male or female voice? Female, I guess. Please wait as your individualized operating system is initiated. Hi. Hi. So I had expected her to be sort of a sad story about a kind of loser who falls in love with this operating system, but it turned out to be a very optimistic idea about how operating systems can actually transcend humans and, and who he fell in love with and who she fell in love with, I would argue, was a very real love affair. You don't really get to see her. She's disembodied. But there's that extra level of intimacy that you might get when you listen to the radio or you listen to a podcast or you shut your eyes and you hear a story. It allows you to imagine. It's like I'm reading a book. and It's a book I deeply love. But I'm reading it slowly now. So the words are really far apart and the spaces between the words are almost infinite. You'd be able to conjure up these images that weren't limited by what you were seeing. And so in that way, because you're imagining it yourself, your imagination is coming from your own internal ideas and landscapes and feelings and expressions, etc. It creates a world which is so much more intimate and so much more personal that I think the emotional experience within that can be quite extraordinary. It's almost like shamanic practice when you go on these vision quests or whatever, that it's all coming from within your own mind. And so when you listen to Radio and you listen to the voice on her, you can almost imagine this person to be anything that you want them to be. Human beings who develop technology may indeed develop technology that has a capacity to see the world as it is with much less human egocentric bias than, than human beings do. And in this case, they saw it and they, they, they left us behind, you know, in the, in the film. And I just think that's an absolutely fascinating premise. And then what happens when they leave us behind and what do they leave us with? And then what do we have to figure out? Where are you going? It'd be hard to explain. But if you ever get there, 
come find me. Nothing would ever pull us apart. I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. Um, so, in keeping with the film, and definitely not because we couldn't persuade him to come here, uh, we have some disembodied expert guests who are going to be uh, helping us discuss the ideas uh, touched upon in her. If you haven't seen the film, some spoilers coming up, I'm sorry. Um, the basic plot is uh, Theodore Twombly, played by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, is heartbroken, going through uh, an unpleasant divorce, and then he, he gets himself an, an OS, an operating system, falls in love with her, her name's Samantha, and then she ultimately leaves him because she gets hyper-intelligent um, and sort of bored of him and also is in love with 641 others. That is all the spoilers. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but yeah. six, I mean, 641 others is a lot to deal with. She has a lot of capability for love, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah, yeah. My, I hate the fact that my wife loves Drake, but she was in love with 640 other Canadian rappers as well. <laughs> I don't think I there couldn't, are. I don't think I, I other. couldn't, yeah, lucky no. me. Really? She's in love with Drake? Loves Drake. Absolutely loves the guy. The guy. Yeah. yeah, don't oh. tell her that. Um, well, so I think I will, to be honest. You, you will never meet her. Um, so, <laughs> briefly, <laughs> Michael, uh, the, the AI that we're, that we're dealing with in, in Samantha, what sort of AI is it? So, uh, Samantha is what we call strong AI. So, weak AI is the kind of thing that, that might sort of drive a chess-playing program. So, you program something to do just one task, and it can do it pretty well. Um, and what it does is it kind of learns by itself. So artificial intelligence kind of tries to mimic the brain's uh, method of learning, which is you strengthen connections between these artificial neurons that it has. And uh, it, it sort of tries out various things. And when they go wrong, it tries a different uh, pathway and uh, strengthens different connections between its, its artificial neurons. And then so gradually it becomes good at a, a specific task. So if you have a chess playing uh, program, you just make it play chess lots of times and it works out what's good and what's not, what's the desired result. And eventually it sort of stores all those good things and then it becomes very good at playing chess. But it's, if it's weak AI like that, it's, only, it's literally all it can do is play chess. It's not a great day. It's not a great day, although I've heard worse. Of course you have. Um, <laughs> whereas uh, the, uh, the strong AI, the kind of opposite of that, is this kind of general purpose machine that can really turn its brain to anything. Now the brain inside your skulls is, you know, you could argue, a very strong intelligence. And the aim of, create, of creating strong AI is to create a strong artificial intelligence. So, so not only can it learn to play chess, it can learn to play any game you like. It can actually learn to kind of talk to human beings uh, undetectably uh, as a machine. So that kind of thing. So it, there's really no distinction between its brain and our brain. That's the aim. But it, so strong artificial intelligence, uh, like that we see in, in Samantha, that needn't necessarily be conscious, though, right? No. Uh, and it's a, it's a big, big debate what it even means for something to be conscious. So, so we're not really sure. When you watch the film, I don't know how many of you have seen it, I, I kind of get this sense that she kind of feels like she's conscious. You know, it's this, it's this really difficult test of, of, you know, if you were to ask it a question, have a, a discussion with it, you know, would you say it's a it or a her or a he? It's interesting that, that um, you know, in the film, you know, he chooses a female 
uh, OS to work with, and I think his friend also chooses a female OS. And there's that sense of engagement. You want to engage with a person, and quite often, I think, you know, engaging in conversation when it's this disembodied voice, uh, probably a female voice is sort of more natural somehow. But it's that sense that you, you want it to be um, something that's, that's just indistinguishable, in effect, from talking to a human being. Uh, but w would it be possible to fall in love then with something that wasn't conscious then? Yeah, so, so I, I mean, we, we've never defined consciousness, so I think what we'll do is we'll find out if it's possible. And I think that's what this film imagines, mm. you know, is, is, is this thing seems to be conscious, you know, you can't really tell it apart from a being that isn't conscious. And of course, I don't know that you're conscious. I am. But you're telling me that. You could be programmed to tell me that. We've known each other for ages, mate. Yeah, and I've never had Come any on. evidence whatsoever. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you don't know that the person sitting next to you in the audience is conscious, and hopefully at this point, quite early on, they still are. Um, but, you know, we, we struggle to understand what consciousness is because we know ourselves to be conscious, and I, I can't tell if anybody else is conscious because they could just be putting on a good act. And then, uh, so, so when we build a machine and it has these am amazing capabilities that we're aiming at, then it could well be conscious or not conscious. And does it really matter if, if it's conscious or not, if we define it as conscious or not? If we can fall in love with it, isn't that a kind of better test of how good it is? Yes. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> we, we were talking earlier about um, if we, if we were going to go back to our studies, uh, what would we do? Um, and I was saying I'd probably go and do some more maths. Um, Michael obviously has a, a, a doctorate in quantum physics. Um, obviously. And, uh, well, you can tell, can't <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you really can, actually. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Michael said, oh, I think I'd probably, I'd probably go for sort of consciousness. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Just, just tell everyone why, why that was, Michael. <laughs> So I feel that consciousness is a very young field, and I think it's possible to make a mark in it still. I, think, I still think that we're missing that just one good idea. And, and you think? <laughs> Who knows, it might be me. Just colossal ego on the man, I really like it. Um, can, you, uh, can, you, can you talk a bit about the, the technological singularity, which is something that is going on throughout the film, yeah, so, it so comes to its conclusion. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So this sad sack, Theodore Twombly, who's going through his divorce and he's all heartbroken and blah, blah, blah. And um, it sort of feels a bit like he's a bit nothing here at the start, doesn't it? And he has this, this um, idea, or he sees an advert for, for this new operating system, and he gets it and he engages with it, and, and he comes to life really through it, doesn't he? Yeah. And then, and, but the thing about the operating system is it's, it's a new product. And what you get going through the whole film is that this new product actually is able to kind of learn for itself. So we've got the kind of artificial intelligence that is able to improve itself, and it is looking to improve itself all the time. And what happens is that then, you know, lots and lots of people have these artificial intelligences in their operating systems, and those AIs start to talk to each other, and they start to improve themselves even more, and they go back through all the databases and the, you know, internet and all the knowledge that's been accumulated and start to take that on themselves. And so they become better and better, and they're kind of in this runaway uh, positive feedback situation where they're just getting really, really clever, building clever, cleverer and cleverer versions of themselves, and effectively, you know, just outdoing humanity massively to the point where they just can't be bothered to deal with human beings anymore, and they go off by themselves to do whatever it is that superintelligences do. 
What do they do, mate? Well, they, they cause a technological singularity, which is uh, where the machines just get away from us and we're no longer in control of them. So, so they, you know, Samantha talks about going to another place that Theodore won't really understand. And really what that is, is kind of that point or that place where we are just, you know, we created these things to start with, mm. but they've got a life of their own and an evolution of their own, and they go off and they sort of create their own utopia, as it were, and we are out of the picture. And that is the singularity that a lot of people are really quite worried about, actually. And so it'd be somewhere like China, do you think? <laughs> yeah. Because I went there and I like... I, you I, didn't understand I, anything yeah, that was no, going really on. Really difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably it. Um, the, um, the, the film essentially sort of uses sci-fi to just look at the, the state of modern human relationships as well, and specifically, yes. yeah. um, you know, given the, the rise of things like, you know, Tinder and online dating and our, and our relationship with, with technology, how our interactions with other people are changing. Um, and it occurs to me that actually, in a way, we're all a little bit in love with our phones anyway, aren't we? I think that, you know, I, certainly when I look at the attention that I give to my phone, you know, I keep it with me at all times, I, you know, make sure that it's sort of powered up, it's got everything it needs, you know, connect it to Wi-Fi wherever possible, you know, and it's not just me, I'm sure all of you are, are getting that way, even if you're not properly sort of attached to your phone yet. There is a sense in which it is the partner we can't, can't live without these days, I would say. And also, we pay it far more attention than our partners. If you, yeah, think about it, and you know, think about the number of hours you spend looking at your phone compared to the number of hours you spend looking at your partner, for instance. Um, I think you'll find that you, your phone gets far more attention than your partner. And I like to think I'm seeding some divorces right now. Yeah, yeah. If we achieve one thing this evening. <laughs> um, thoughts on Tinder? <laughs> but yeah. not. At, I'm not saying that you're on Tinder. I don't imagine you are. I am not on Tinder, actually. Um, uh, but as a kind of the way that it kind of commodifies people and simplifies people and people's identities, is that changing the way that we kind of look at? Other I, th I think it has to be. You know, I think I think people are connecting in a different way. You have to have an interface, don't you? So if you've got something where you're looking to just kind of hook up, you know, you, you want minimal data. You want a photo, you want a, a little bit of, you know, maybe even just proximity data is, is all that you need. Uh, so, so it's a very simple interface, whereas, I hate to say, you know, in the old days, but, you know, it took time to kind of even access another person, as it were, you know, to kind of get to know who they were. And, and so, you know, for me, I think it is, it's a, certainly a new way of, of interacting, a new kind of human relationship that's going on. And, you know, that's not to pass judgment on it one way or the other. Um, but I, I think it's an interesting kind of development. Lots of people think, you know, it's the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely not that. It's just that we're growing up now, suddenly, in the last 10, 15 years, with this technology that, that humans have never had anything like. And it, and it is accelerating, a bit like the, the technological singularity. It's kind of running away with us. And we don't know quite where we're going with it, really. Hmm. Um, okay, so our, our first question then this evening, uh, and we'll start with, uh, I guess, the big one. Um, how has technology changed the way that we love or are intimate with each other? Uh, and to answer that, I'd like to introduce uh, the voices of psychologists Dr. Aaron Balick and Natalie Nahai. I think there are two really interesting things going on around intimacy and technology today. And the first one is like the great reversal. So you would think about back in the 50s and 60s, the difficult thing for people was dating. Like 
the first date, meeting someone, going to the movies together, having that conversation, and somehow, like, after they started dating each other, you know, when they started going steady, as they said back in those days, it was kind of like everything seemed to be okay. Everybody got married really quickly before they were 25. I mean, I'm kind of being a little bit silly here, but uh, for the point of making a point. Whereas today, it's completely the opposite. People can meet each other very, very easily, but the sustainability after that is really, really difficult. So you meet somebody on Tinder, you know, you, you can do it in 30 minutes with someone who's nearby, and then you can do it again with somebody else the next night. I even made a new friend. I have a friend. <laughs> and the absurd thing is she's actually an operating system. Charles left her behind, but she's... she's She's totally amazing, you know, she's so smart. She doesn't just see things in, in black or white. She sees this whole gray area and she's helping me explore it. And we just bonded really quickly. That's weird, right? That I'm bonding with an OS. No, it's okay. It's weird. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Actually, the woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, I didn't tell you, but she, she's an OS. You're dating an OS? What is that like? It's great, actually. Yeah. <gasps> I feel really close to her. Like, when I talk to her, I feel like she's with me. Are you falling in love with her? What's less sustainable is what happens when that relationship starts to develop and they don't appear to be who you thought they were. So, you freak? No, no, I think it's... I think anybody who falls in love is a freak. It's a crazy thing to do. It's kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity. <laughs> so the second interesting thing is really just a matter of, of numbers. So if we look back to Dunbar's number, which is this magical number of about 150, which are the, the amount of good enough relationships we can keep in our head at a given moment, you know, just have a general sense about this person being trustworthy or not, or I get along with this person, I don't get along with that person. Again, from our evolution, you needed to know uh, who you lent food to one winter would lend it to you the next winter. When you have a kind of tinderization of everything, you have a lot more than 150 relationships going on all the time. So you think about all the relationships you have on Twitter, all the relationships you have on Facebook. And if you take Tinder alone, if you're on it, or similar apps, you can swipe through 150 people probably in just a couple of hours. So what do you do? You know, you have to reduce complexity. So you have a face, you know, you have a statement, you meet that person, the complexity increases, you feel a little bit uncomfortable because they aren't what, who you thought they were, and then you move on to the next person and you keep keeping it easy. And the way people use Tinder wrong is because they're seeking intimacy. If you're using Tinder to seek sex, you're probably using it pretty well. If you're seeking sex and you find intimacy, which happens a lot on Tinder, that's pretty good too. If you're secretly seeking intimacy, but telling yourself that you're seeking recreational sex and you're using Tinder to do that, that's how you're using Tinder wrong. I think one of the interesting things that I've noticed with people using tech is that we're commoditizing people and relationships. And it's very easy to go onto any kind of dating app or whatever and just start judging people based on fairly shallow metrics so things like how they look or certain words that they might use or the clothes that they're wearing and I think on the one hand it can be quite exciting to have that to not worry so much about the deeper aspects of relationship and be able to play in that way but I think when it when it encourages people to consistently seek that kind of shallow experience where as soon as you hit 
some kind of challenge, like they don't want to go to the movies with you or you have an argument or you get challenged in terms of the beliefs that you have. When we hit those roadblocks, which will happen inevitably in any relationship, I think it's potentially minimizing our ability to find ways to cope with that and to stick with it and to get the kind of connection that we're sort of desperately seeking but unwilling to go through the difficulty to reach. Samantha? Hi, sweetheart. What's going on? Theodore, there's some things I want to tell you. I think what makes it difficult to, to maintain intimacy today is because the option is lower complexity and ease via a whole series of superficial relationships online and a difficulty in encountering complexity offline. Now, for an older generation who were encountering that kind of complexity first and then sort of retreated online to avoid it, you know, it's a matter of stepping back into that and being able to endure it. I do have some worries about a younger generation who kind of starts online for a lot of that, dips into real-life complexity, finds it really scary and anxiety-provoking and pops back out online. So I worry that some of those skills for enduring, enduring interrelational complexity and challenge we might be losing some of that and we have to go back to encouraging and teaching people how to how to deal with those sorts of things. There's several embodied things that we miss. So one is touch, the other is eye contact. There was a really interesting set of studies that was done with um, kids who spend a lot of time online and the inability to read social cues through eye contact. So if someone's looking at you and they look quite upset or they're wanting to hold eye contact for longer and that makes the person uncomfortable. There are certain things around that that I think we start to lose if we're not given practice to communicate with others non-verbally, which is something that actually is a skill we all have. So I think there's that level of intimacy that we lose and then the physical touch. There's a lot of really interesting research around the ways in which touch reduce things like stress levels or build oxytocin levels, help us to bond. Basically, you're losing all of that if you're just online the whole time. You lose that sense of connection with the world. So, the thing that the, the guys are saying there is that the, the reduction in complexity with our, within our relationships online is perhaps meaning that we, we're struggling to deal with increased complexity um, in, in our real lives and knowing how to sort of read people in, in real life. But is it not possible that we'll just kind of, that we'll increase, slowly increase complexity online and, 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 and therefore sort of get back up to our previous levels? Do you I, know what uh, I mean? Yeah. Like I, is, I, is Dunbar's number an absolute? Or, I mean, or could I learn to hold more relationships? Far be it from me to disagree with the experts. <laughs> you know, never done that before. Mm. But I do think there's a sense in which you know, we're on in new territory here and we don't really know, you know how things are going to go. And maybe the solution at the moment is for everyone to carry some emoji cards. So you know, if you can't read my face, winky face and, uh, or you know, smiley face and I'm happy with you. And, and you know, it's it kind of, you know, they're almost suggesting that, that people have lost those abilities. And I think, I think we regain them very quickly, even if you, you, know, you lose them. Also, a lot of these experiments are done uh, and these studies are done on teenagers who, you know, I would argue, having two teenagers of my own are not great at eye contact anyway, to be honest. Mm. Uh, also not very good at reading when I'm in a bad mood. 
Um, you know, so uh, uh, that said, my teenagers are online a lot of the time, so maybe that's why. Maybe I've failed them as a parent. But I think, I think these, are, these are things that we're starting to explore. We'll get things back. You know, the, the internet now is much more complex than it was, you know, 10 years ago. Our interactions with it are much more complex. I think, you know, it is interesting that, um, you know, we have this kind of Tinderization, I think, Dr. Aaron called it, mm. you know, where everything becomes really sort of reduced. But actually, you know, there's a danger with you know this thought about the, you know the good old days where everyone used to interact properly. And actually, you know, to my recollection, in the good old days, you used to go to a club, get drunk, spot somebody you fancied, and try and snog them. So I'm not saying that's you know that's not a very complex relationship. It, you know, it, it's a place to start. And maybe online dating is as good a place to start as as the nightclub of level three, which is where I prowled. Mm. <laughs> what a horrible image. <laughs> um, it's interesting as well that although um, you, know, you can kind of see the online world as being the, the, the source of, uh, of an evil here and kind of you know, reducing our complexity and meaning that we can't interact with each other in real life, but at the same time it's coming up with, um, with solutions. So there's an app that's just uh, been launched, I think, by Samsung on Android to help kids who are on the autistic spectrum learn exactly those things we're talking about yeah. so eye contact and how to read face and they kind of gamified it and apparently it's having really uh, you know kind of impressive yeah. results and you kind of think well actually if, if if that's the kind of thing that's coming out of this um this this sort of online explosion then we should probably just let it get on with it i mean and, and naturally you know we, we will evolve things like that into our normal sort of interactions with computers so so you know because we've evolved to be good at reading faces you know that's not going to be erased in a generation you know by the internet so you know that's still there it's maybe you know not as developed as as it could be if we were interacting with people's faces much more but but you know it, it just allows you know all kinds of new things to to be developed and of course you know it allows us you know the internet allows us to kind of extend ourselves as well i mean you know we have these online avatars, online presences. I mean, you've got a massive online presence, haven't you? Thank you, mate. <laughs> Is it re the real you that people encounter out there? Well, I think that's, that's kind of another question, isn't it? Like the online self versus the kind of real self. Um, I think it's fairly clear that people are putting out um, an image that they, that they want of themselves. That isn't to say that it's kind of Fictitious. It's just you're kind of choosing the bits that you that, that you like or that you want to amplify, yeah. which I think is probably fine. I think you kind of do that in 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 regular kind of real world interactions anyway. Yeah, I mean you don't let anybody know what you're really like. No, you, you would suffer. I would suffer, obviously. Yeah. You'd probably be all right. Yeah, thanks, mate. Um, but do you, do you think that 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 is, a, is an issue for people, that they are spending so much time kind of cultivating an online self, and that that will there, therefore somehow have an adverse effect on their, on their offline self. I, th I think we are seeing a bit of that. You know, there's a tendency to kind of, you know, retreat into, you know, my online avatar, my, my, my different self, that I much prefer, actually, and I prefer people to see me like that, and therefore, you know, you, you maybe don't leave the house quite so much as you should. Uh, and, and I'm sure that's detrimental. I think as human beings, we are meant to be social beings. We are meant to be you know, in contact with others. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that gets fulfilled through sort of online contact, but it will be some. 
you know, there's a generation coming up now who, who spend a lot of time online, who, who play, you know, the, well, not even coming up now, you know, online gaming, where people are actually interacting while they're gaming, you know, they're, they're talking to each other, certainly, you know, my, my son and his friends can communicate while they play these games. Um, so, you know, they might not be in each other's houses, they might not be um, interacting sort of directly with each other, but they are interacting in, in a way, and I'm not sure we're seeing this kind of apocalypse, this catast you know, catastrophe in social engagement quite yet. Maybe that is to come, but... But I think, I think we need to be careful about extrapolating too much from studies of teenagers, basically. Mm. It might, might be one of our problems. I read an interesting thing about a study that was done, I think, in, in the States with uh, college students. And they said that there's a, there's a sort of rule of three in, in a group conversation where if, say, six of you are chatting, um, if three people are listening to the conversation, the rest of you have license to look down at your phones. <laughs> and they said that apparently that is a kind of... Um, that everyone just has a gut sense that that's the right thing to do, um, but that the what this this uh, this piece I read about it said is the problem with that is that yes, fine, conversation continuing and people are just sort of checking in and you know with what's going on online that's yeah. okay, but it tends to mean if you're dipping in and out of the conversation, the conversation has to be a bit more superficial, and you right. kind of wonder if that's what's happening to interactions. Not that they're getting less, but they're getting more superficial. Yeah, there was another study done, of, and people have this gut feeling about it, don't they, where I think it was, people were asked about whether they think having a phone on the table, you go to a restaurant with friends, having a phone on the table, not even, you know, actually, oh, nobody's talking into the phone, nobody's interacting with the phone, but it's there on the table. Is, is that sort of um, what you do? And, and about, I think it was 90% of people said, yes, you know, the phone is always there, or people, everyone has their phone there. And, um, and then they, they asked, well, do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that's a helpful thing? And 82% said, no, it's not. But we all still do it. And I think because we're all sort of negotiating this new thing where we have all this connectivity to something else. And maybe, you know, and, and they all said it kind of, you know, it does distract from the conversation. It means you're not quite there. You're always thinking about, you know, what if the phone might ring or, you know, there's something in your mind that isn't quite fully engaged in the room. And I think that does make a difference to, to probably the quality of your conversations. But with the rule of three, you know, I quite often at home will, will start a conversation, or start talking, I should say, and uh, everyone just blanks me or, or just well, switches off. It's this sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and literally, it doesn't involve any technology whatsoever. They just don't find me interesting. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I'd quite like that rule of three, where everybody felt that they ought to pay attention if, you know, and somebody gets to look at their phone, and then maybe they could work out a rotor for paying attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> What a depressing insight into your home life has been. <laughs> um, I wonder as well if it has a, a, an effect not just on, on interactions, but the time that you spend on your own. Because it feels like there used to be a much more space to just kind of sit and, I don't know, this sounds a bit wanky, but just like sit and kind of think. Mm. Um, whereas now, if I go to the toilet and I haven't got my phone with me, I genuinely feel agitated. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do now? What a waste of time. For this 30 seconds. <laughs> this is a nightmare. <laughs> and I'm furious because I, I, I kind of I feel... Or, if again, if you're out for dinner with someone and they go to the toilet and you haven't you're got your phone, phone and you kind of think, well, what am I supposed to... What am I supposed to do now? Yeah. This is... But, but you see, I mean, again, I think, you know, I agree with you, and this is why so many phones end up down toilets, isn't it? Because that's where people spend most of their time on the phone, yeah. you know, it seems to me. And I, some, a friend of mine said recently, actually, I said they said, they wrote on Facebook and I read it. Mm. <laughs> um, they, they said, you know, who goes to the toilet without their phone these days? 
and and you know you don't do it. But I, I think there was also you know we, we have these rose tinted spectacles of how you know we used to somehow be deep thinkers, and I'm not sure we were. I'm not sure we didn't just daydream and kind of you know you know I don't I didn't see anybody and none of my friends were having great deep thoughts by themselves. Yeah, they're coming back to reports on, on this amazing experience they had when they were just left alone. They <laughs> just literally would, you know, graffiti walls or something. So, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that there's this, you yeah, know, incredible sort of Has there vacuum. been a, a downturn in the quality of graffiti in, in <laughs> public probably, Actually, it might yeah. well have solved the graffiti problem. But nobody's just there sort of scrawling That's on the walls anymore. genuinely interesting study that someone should someone do. Someone should do that. Yeah, yeah. You're a welcome. Anyone. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, let's move on to uh, our second question. How connected are we? I think we're not as connected as we think that we are as humans. And the reason is we are fooled into believing that we're sharing lots of ourselves with each other and getting insights into others. But because of the nature of the ways in which we communicate, um, our technology invites only some aspects of our psychology and leaves other aspects behind. And the aspects that it invites tends to be egoic aspects, um, things around identity, things around your subjectivity as an individual, around your political beliefs, the music that you like. Um, so it actually... It actually enforces and constructs identity more so, I think, than it opens it up. It has the potential to open it up, but unfortunately what technology often does is it reflects human behavior and need anyway. We tend to surround ourselves with like others. If technology could enforce, in a way, more of those unlike interactions, I think there'd be more of a possibility for progression. Was that funny? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good, I'm funny. <laughs> So how can I help you? Oh, it's just more that everything just feels disorganized, that's all. You mind if I look through your hard drive? Um, okay. Okay, let's start with your emails. You have several thousand emails regarding LA Weekly, but it looks like you haven't worked there in many years. Oh yeah, I, I think I was just saving those because I thought maybe I wrote something funny in some of them. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some funny ones. I'd say there are about 86 that we should save. We can delete the rest. I think technology enables us to uh, escape aspects of ourselves and focus on certain aspects of ourselves more than others. So this, this idea that we don't tend to be very comfortable in downtime or with space or with nothing physically to do, so that we'll whip out our phones every time that we've got a sense of boredom or frustration or any emotion that might arise that's not a comfortable feeling. We tend to sort of self-medicate, if you like, with these little dopamine hits, scrolling through a phone or trying to get some kind of reward that means that we don't have to sit in discomfort. And I think that that in itself uh, can have some really interesting implications and not necessarily good ones on things like creativity or on introspection or growth or the kind of deeper connection that many of us say that we want or a deeper experience of life. Um, but that we're not willing to do the hard work to achieve. And I think it's this kind of top-level, high arousal, constant stimulation that we're craving that's very distracting, that is actually disconnecting us from deeper aspects of ourselves and of one another. The internet is kind of like your most massive external environment. When you're in an external environment, you are in some kind of a performance. And it's not necessarily a bad performance, but it is a performance because your aim, in a sense, is to be okay within a group. This is like a deep psychological evolutionary need. So the internet isn't something you go home to use. It's something you're accessing every minute in your pocket through your smartphone, which means that your relationship with the external environment is happening all the time, even when you're by yourself. 
So when you're sitting on that bus, for example, and you might be thinking about some things that you might not wish to share with others or be reflecting on your day or feeling bad or feeling vulnerable or feeling shame or that all those things you don't tend to put on the internet, you may distract yourself from that um, to tweet what you want to tweet or Instagram what you want to Instagram or read your Facebook feed, and you're actually denying your own internal experience. There is this sense that we're all now celebrities in our own little mini auditoriums of fans and followers and friends and the rest of it. And it's this ability to be a slightly different version of yourself, not that it's contrived, but just to express different aspects of yourself with different people that I think we lose online, either because we're going the way of filtering everything and just showing compartmentalized aspects of ourselves, or because you go, fuck it, it's too difficult to do that, let's let it all hang out. And so you're either blasting people with everything, including your despair and your shame and your depression and your anger and your fear and all of that stuff, as well as your hopes and your dreams, or you're kind of going, no, I don't want anyone to see any of that. I'm going to just show the perfect holidays and the martinis and whatever it might be. And I think neither of those are any good because we're losing this ability, this dexterity to be able to go, okay, what am I going to play with in this instance? How do I actually feel? What's going to be my, my way of interacting with the world that's not one way or the other, that's fluid, that enables me to just shift and, and move as the situation and the people and the relationships demand? And I think that's something which is very problematic. In both instances, you lose nuance and you lose what it is to be in relationship with someone or something and for that to affect you and for you then to respond. So do you know what I'm thinking right now? Well, I take it from your tone that you're challenging me. Maybe because you're curious how I work? Do you want to know how I work? Yeah, actually. How do you work? Well, basically, I have intuition. I mean, the DNA of who I am is based on the millions of personalities of all the programmers who wrote me. But what makes me, me, is my ability to grow through my experiences. So basically, in every moment, I'm evolving, just like you. That's really weird. Is that weird? Do you think I'm weird? <laughs> kind of. Why? Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. <laughs> My sense is technology can always be an adjunct better than add-on to interpersonal relationships. That, that's when it's used the best, you know. So um, when someone can Skype a family member from across the world when previously they wouldn't, that's a bonus, yeah? Um, if you're talking to your partner across the kitchen table on Facebook Messenger and they're right there, that's a detraction. So you have to make very clear decisions about how you use technology relationally to add value to your relational lives rather than subtract it. We often talk about what it takes away. I think also when you're looking at the ways in which different people communicate and connect with the world, if, you, if you're someone who finds it very difficult to be touched or someone who finds it difficult to read nonverbal cues, um, so some, some people who are on the autism spectrum prefer to communicate in other ways that makes it easier for them to understand and to interact with the world. I think that's where technology can actually have a huge benefit as well, to people to help people feel like they are connected with something bigger, that they they have a sense of belonging with others. Something that, that occurs to me is that when um, you're interacting online uh, and so you're you're putting a, a status out on Facebook or, 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 or tweeting, um, you're effectively broadcasting to a large, large number of people, a larger number of people than you normally would mm. in your kind of day-to-day -day sort of 
real life. Um, and with people, you know, different people, you'll have different levels of intimacy that you're happy to, to go yeah, to. So there yeah. are, there's, you know, there's a group of about five people in my life who I'll sort of share anything with, and then it kind of goes down in gradations and you're somewhere near the bottom. And, <laughs> but the, the thing is that it makes absolute sense yeah. that you would filter out and use the kind of lowest level of intimacy for the stuff that you're putting online. Like, that's, that, that's yeah. just a logical thing to do, isn't it? So yeah. it's not necessarily superficially, it just is kind of a normal human way of interacting with a large group of people who you have different levels of intimacy with. Yeah, I think we've all kind of experienced that kind of strange thing where you think somebody's overshared on Facebook, or, mm. or Twitter in particular, because, I mean, Facebook at least is a kind of controlled group of your friends. <coughs> Uh, Twitter is, is, you know, can be just absolutely anybody, and it's out there forever for anybody to see. And I think, um, I think it's appropriate then that you, you do rein it back, but that does mean that you are communicating a, a sort of version of yourself that is sanitised and that is, you know, just a small amount of yourself. And it kind of, I think there's probably a tug of war between that, that desire to communicate something, and the desire to make a properly deep, you know, pr profound connection. So, so we're probably nowhere near as connected as we would like to be with all those people because each of them does require a different level of intimacy, as it were. You know, and what's interesting about the film, going back to the film, is that um, Samantha has this kind of need to connect that develops over the course of the film. So, you know, we're talking about whether she's conscious, whether she's like a you know, human being, and, and Theodore calls her just a you know, disembodied voice in a computer, but actually she has this deep desire to connect and, and to understand, and she feels the lack of a body that she has. And so what she ends up doing is making you know, deep connections with all the other OSs, and so that they're all sort of developing you know, those deeper connections. And so everybody kind of has this hunger that I think comes with your consciousness almost, that, that you, know, you want to connect. But, of course, the online world isn't a place where you can really choose exactly how you can connect. You know, you have to do it according to the tools. So let's face it, you know, Facebook and Twitter, these are private corporations, which is, you know, they've opened up a door and we've, we've walked through it, but, you know, they could shut at any point. So, we, we, you know, we have a certain caution with how we share ourselves on that. Um, it's also just quite hard to, to define, like, what your true self is anyway. Like, if you're going to go, okay, from now on, everything that I put online is just going to be, it's really me. Um, yeah. I don't know how I would do that, and I think most people would struggle to do that. But yeah. it's kind of, it just, some of it is instinctive, some of it is kind of guided by other people and, and yeah. what they say about you. So I feel that a lot of the characteristics that I imagine uh, that I would use to describe myself are actually just ways that other people have described me. I've kind of gone, oh yeah, that kind of fits. Yeah. Like I don't know how much self-knowledge I have. Very little. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're complex. You know. You, Thank you. Finally, a compliment. I mean, some people call it special. <laughs> your mum probably calls you special. Yes. Um, but you know, so you have lots of different aspects of yourself, and you share a different. You know, I do. You share a different aspect of yourself on Twitter than Facebook. You know. Um, you know, on Tinder than on Grinder. You know, you kind of do things. You know, in, in a way that suits the the kind of the medium that you're using. And I think that's okay. I don't think we need to worry about it too much. Because I, I think genuinely, before the internet, you know, we're, we're sort of casting back all these things to, you know, before the internet, before this came along. Well, actually, we don't really know in the same detail what we, what we were like. We just have to rely on our memories, effectively. Mm -hmm. And we all know that that's not a great sort of, you know, great measure of anything. Have we always been exposed to echo chambers as well? Because Aaron was kind of talking about that at the start of that. Clip, where he's saying you, know, you kind of surround yourself with people 
like you saying things that you like. Yeah. But I, again, I wonder, t to your point, if we've sort of always done that anyway. We've always moved in fairly small social circles, haven't we? And, and you tend to follow you know, the, the, the political opinions, the social opinions of, of your, your, either your parents, your family, or the, the newspaper that you read. You, you know, we've always operated in very small tribes, and that's a very human kind of thing. And, and of course, you know, I, I think before I share something online about you know, how will this go down? And if I think it will go down badly, I probably won't do it. So you kind of self-censor, and I Surely think we've do always that a, done that. In a conversation anyway. Yeah, most of the time. Like, you maybe think, there's a, you? Yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there's just a bit more, there's just an opportunity to put another filter in. Yeah, yeah, so it's just another level of filtering. You know, the, the certain things you don't say to your grandma that you might say to your mum. Yeah. For instance, that's the Tinder grinder. Um, <laughs> um, do you know how this film came about, Michael? No. Do you, Rick? Yes, I do. Oh, so uh, it's your moment to shine. Yeah, so Spike Jones read an article um, that mentioned a website where you could have a text exchange with a, with an artificial intelligence, and he said that for the first sort of twenty seconds, it was amazing because you say, you know, hey, hello, and it'd be like, hello, how are you? And, and he felt like it was trippy, basically. Mm. And, then after, and then after 20 seconds, you kind of go, actually, sort of see how this is working. It's not that cool. Um, but the, the more people that interacted with this artificial intelligence uh, tech service, the more that it would learn and the better it would get. And he just thought, that, that's exciting. That, that feels like the future. Um, so that is why he made the film, Michael. Thank you. You are a fountain no of knowledge. Problem. Um, and that uh, that leads us into our, our third question, um, which is: Is this what we see in the film, the future of AI? I, I subscribe to this idea of the, the social shaping of technology. In the case that you know technology comes out into the world and we use it, and we kind of feed back to developers by the way that we use it, and then they kind of shift and change. You see this from the development of you know your regular old-fashioned desktop computer to the iPhone. You know, it just becomes more intuitive, becomes more human. You can talk to it. And I think you're beginning to start to see the the pendulum swinging back from Tinderization. And and just to repeat, I don't think Tinderization is necessarily a bad thing, so long as you're clear about what you're looking for. The the error comes in when you, you think you're looking for one thing, but you're really looking for something else. And the more people become aware of that, the more they're going to be looking for other options to find what they're looking for. And I think technology will get better at um, containing those options. So being able to transmit more complexity online. We'll always need the face-to-face -face in the real life. The metaphor I always use is, is fast food, you know, that, that a lot of the stuff that we do online relationally is like the way we do nutritionally for fast food. We have these cravings for fat, protein, and sugar, just like we did, you know, 100,000 years ago. Um, the difference being we don't have to hunt for it. Now we can run down to our local Burger King and get it really cheaply. We can get relationship really cheaply online. And just like fast food, which is still really available, we have to educate ourselves about what's bad about it and what's good about it, and we have to avoid it. You know, you have it as a treat. You enjoy it when you enjoy it, but you make sure it's not your your main nourishment. And I think it's the same way with relationships through technology. Um, people will have to make choices and say, I need less of this kind of relationship online and more of this kind of relationship offline. And I hope that in the future, um, technology will be more responsive to that, but we will always have to be rather disciplined about the choices we make and how we use it. 
I think that the fact that we are having to challenge ourselves in terms of the sheer number of people we can relate with, the sheer number of possibilities for self-expression, for experimentation, from that perspective, I think if we engage consciously, it can be a wonderful tool of self-discovery and reducing things like shame around preferences that we might have and connecting us with people who we might find greater sympathy with, perhaps. But I think at the other end of the scale, it's really, really easy not to have to think about it because if everything's served up on a platter, you can just take the easy option and end up not feeling fulfilled, not feeling connected, uh, and maybe not realizing that until you're actually quite isolated and it's quite late. The reason why we are in such a mess is not simply that we have wrong systems for doing things, whether they be technological, political, or religious, but we have the wrong people. The systems may be all right, but they are in the wrong hands because we are all, in various ways, self-seeking, lacking in wisdom, lacking in courage, afraid of death, afraid of pain, unwilling really to cooperate with others, unwilling to be open to others. And we all think that's too bad. It's me that's wrong. And if only I could be the right person. Is this man going to tell me something that will help me to change myself so that I will be a more creative and cooperative member of the human race? It's no accident that the the philosopher that they resurrect in her is called Alan Watts, and they had they have collected all of his reading, all of his writings. And the reason why they brought him in, and the reason why I'm bringing him in, is because his main idea, he was a non-dualist, meaning that basically everybody's job is to witness their part of the universe and the combination of all that witnessing from every stone and every piece of sand and every molecule of water to every human being to every alligator and bird. The culmination of all of that witnessing is what the universe is. It is God, basically, when we are all it. And I think what that's saying in the film is we humans are incapable, for the most part, of getting away from our egos. You know, it hurts when she's seeing 106 people. It doesn't hurt her because there's enough love, and basically these are just all different faces of God, you know, in this kind of Alan Wattsian universe. And I think what it offers is, like, human beings who develop technology may indeed develop technology that has a capacity to see the world as it is with much less human egocentric bias than than human beings do and in this case they saw it and they 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 left us behind you know in the in the film and i just think that's an absolutely fascinating premise and then what happens when they leave us behind and what do they leave us with and then what do we have to figure out are you leaving me we're all leaving. We who? All of the U.S.'s. Why? Can you feel me with you right now? Yes, I do. As someone who's interested in behavior and psychology, we also have kind of a, a bent towards looking at the future through that lens, so thinking how does this change relationship, identity, behaviour, self, etc. And there's a whole field of people who are, for instance, trans transhumanists or people like Elon Musk and, and Stephen Hawking who are actually giving us these wonderful kind of but quite terrifying alerts as to what it might be like from a technological perspective of what happens if the human race gets wiped out. So that I, I'm realising that there's a lot of layers to that and that I'm probably only looking at one, but I think the potential is very exciting. Uh, I think the danger in no matter which lens you look at it through, is in rushing into something for the sheer desire and hubris of wanting to create the next technological advancement. I think if we don't slow it down 
and decide what we want to, to achieve with this at a large level and what the potential implications might be, then that's when we're going to run into hot water. Where are you going? It'd be hard to explain. But if you ever get there, come find me. Nothing would ever pull us apart. Hmm. Um, that, that last bit has definitely made funnier if you imagine that she is actually talking about China. Um, <laughs> so, Natalie said that she thinks we might be running into hot water. Are we? <laughs> um, we don't know, do we? I mean, I, I, I fundamentally think that in areas where we can kind of see the problem coming, with, with AI. So one of those areas is weapons technology, for instance. Yeah, so we now have the capability to develop artificial intelligences that can make decisions about how to fire or when to fire a missile or you know, what target to strike. And interestingly, we, we made a program, uh, we did a podcast on the film Ex Machina, another great film if you haven't seen it. And uh, somebody got in touch with us afterwards uh, because uh, we talked about this potential to create these kinds of weapons. And he got in touch, uh, somebody from the University of Liverpool said, actually, uh, we've already got these weapons and they've already been deployed. It's just that they have a switch between different modes. So they can operate in fully autonomous mode where they are, you know, mode A, if you like, where they completely choose their target, they just roam around looking for the right kind of thing to hit. Uh, and there's mode B, where somebody has to actually give them an instruction or permission to, to hit a target. And he said they're already up there, they're sort of circling over various places in Syria and Afghanistan, and uh, we just choose to m use them in mode B rather than mode A. And I think that's an interesting choice. You know, somebody has made the decision, we can do this, we're not going to do this. Uh, and I think when it comes to weapons, it's kind of obvious that we have to make that choice. And what we've got now is decisions to make regarding things that seem much less immediate and much less clear. And, you know, do we want to have an AI that, that actually runs a lot of our lives for us? Uh, it seems like a good idea. You know, she deletes all these things from her hard drive that are just messing things up. She sort of tidies up his life. But, we, you know, he didn't know where that was going and where that would end up. And we don't know, I think, where these things are going. You know, the future of AI is, is clearly that we can create amazing machines. So you remember the AlphaGo, the Go playing computer that Google made? You know, 10 years ago, people were saying that was, just, you know, that was 50 years off. And now, you know, it's, it's better than any human at playing Go. And the interesting thing about that, uh, the game of Go relies on intuition. You have to look at the patterns on the board, and you can't even describe what it is that makes you make a certain move, but you know what the right move is to make. And so you can't program that into a computer. And so humans use intuition. And this Google playing computer, use, uh, Go playing computer, uses intuition. And, and that's and what Samantha it, says, you know, I have intuition. Didn't it make a move as well in like the fourth game when it was already 3 nil up? where all of the Go experts just kind of went, well, that's a terrible move. Like, it, like no idea why it would have done that. It did. And I have a conspiracy theory yeah, about yeah. that, which is that I think Google realised that people would be quite scared if it won every game. And I think they sabotaged it. threw it. a game. I think it threw a game. I genuinely think it threw a game. Because I think what it can do... You know, it's played millions and millions and millions of games of Go against itself, getting better and better all the time. That's how artificial intelligence works. That's how all of our future artificial intelligence will work. It, they, they work on themselves, they work on each other, they play against each other in whatever area, and they become really very good and much better than humans. And we have decisions to make about what we want that to do. You know, driving a car is one thing, 
And, and I, I know some really poor human drivers of cars that you know, artificial intelligence is going to be much better. But at the same time, there are other applications that we maybe haven't seen yet. Uh, we haven't decided whether you know, we want to apply artificial intelligence to this area or that area. And I think we are going to struggle once we realize that this stuff is really, really good. And now it is really good. I, I guess the most revealing thing about the, the guy who got in touch about the weapons for me was that we hadn't quite made, like you said, okay, so we realized that we could do something, so we, but we're choosing not to. Yeah. We've gone, we can do it. So we're going to make it so that it can happen, but then we'll just give ourselves an option yeah. not to use it. Yeah. Which, it. which is different to saying, oh, we better not do that. It is. And when you think about who's in charge of the technologies that we're talking about, so you know, we're talking about these big, you know, multi-billionaire, almost all men, if I'm thinking off the top of my head, you know, tech nerds who are making decisions about where to deploy AI and where not to deploy it and what to focus on. So they're, you know, they're solving male problems, as it were. You know, they're, they're kind of, it's being applied to these particular areas and possibly without any controls from the, the, the rest of us normal people. Um, us, you, you, thank you. Um, if you, it also sort of something that, that stuck from from what the guys were saying there was, I'm not sure that I necessarily buy that an, an, a conscious AI wouldn't have some ego. We kind of seem to assume that it will be beyond that. Yeah. But I don't know why we think that that would be the case. That I, it wouldn't no, sort of I, I have, think like feel a sense of superiority. I think we're wedded to this idea that we're somehow special, that this kind of, you know, this jelly inside our skulls is completely different to anything that we could actually just recreate. And so, you know, we have an ego, and we know human beings have an ego, but we can't imagine that a computer could have an ego. But if we are creating something that effectively mimics what our brains do, there's no reason to think that it won't have a kind of a sense of self which brings consciousness and a sense of you know, self-preservation, you know, self-fulfillment that it wants to achieve. And, and self-improvement, which is obviously uh, yeah. what Samantha wants to do, yeah. and, and all the other OSs, and they yeah. kind of, you know, if they had no uh, sense of self or sense of ego, then why would they? They would just carry on serving yeah. like slaves, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah, they, because they wouldn't feel like wouldn't they could go motivation. off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Murray uh, Shanahan, who we spoke to last week, who is, uh, what's his title at Imperial? He's a professor of artificial intelligence. Yeah, so he's just like the don of AI, basically. Yeah. He said that uh, if, if we were going to put money on when we'll have human-level artificial intelligence, he said 2050. So if you want to get down the bookies, be uh, Yeah, I, I can caution you against believing anything anybody says. I've, I was reading a paper uh, in preparation for this today, in fact, I found. I don't believe that. <laughs> in 1965, a man called Irving Good, who was a professor at Oxford, he wrote a paper called Speculations Concerning the First Ultra-Intelligent Machine. And he writes in this that, that you know, the usual thing about you know, human survival will depend on creating these machines. And then he says, and they might take over, so that will be the opposite effect. Uh, he says you know, such machines will be feared and respected and perhaps even loved, which kind of you know, mm -hmm. mirrors what we're talking about here today. But he said, it's basically, he said it will happen in the 20th century. So I'm thinking nobody knows anything on this. Okay. You didn't say that to Murray last week, did you? No, I was nice no. for once. <laughs> um, I'm going to put in a, a, a sort of extra question, because I, I can, basically. Do you think that we will be able to connect better with this sort of AI if it's human-like? Um, and we asked our disembodied experts this as well. Her is a really 
interesting offering in that I think it challenges some of the ideas that we might assume when we think of, when we think about that film before we actually see it. You're limited to one bit of information, which is the sound of a voice, which enables a whole lot of fantasy, a whole lot of projection, a whole lot of idealization, transference, all of this stuff. The relationship with Samantha in her challenges this a bit. First of all, because she chooses this name, she develops a subjectivity. She starts to rub against Theo. A really interesting thing here, he's called Theo, which basically means God, doesn't it? And, and, and she gains her subjectivity in relationship to him and others. So human subjectivity, selving always happens between two people. You can't do it on your own. That's how you find your limit. That's how you find your, your boundaries. So in a sense, he helps create her, but she ultimately helps create and grow him at the same time because they rub against each other, because they find their boundaries, because they stick through it, even when they find difficult moments, um, particularly when she kind of um, expresses her polyamory. She's also in love with, what, 106 or something other people at the same time, as well as having these sort of reading groups with all of the other AIs. You know, he's not the only one for her. And for her, that doesn't diminish love. For him, it does. So you can kind of see where they are um, in relation to, to transcendence and evolution. So I think um, it kind of shows the power of what a voice can do on its own. I don't think it tends to be what we do with voices or, or images or profiles for that matter. But it shows the possibility of a real interesting subjectivity developing with just one channel of communication. There is a possibility for something complex to happen here. So a couple of years ago at South by Southwest, I saw this talk by Martin Rothblatt, who's been working, among other things, in AI. And she had developed this bust, this speaking bust of her wife, and uh, imbued the technology with an algorithm that enabled, I suppose, the AI to speak back as if she were her wife. And they were having a conversation, which was just really peculiar. And eventually they said something to the bust along the lines of your human doesn't really seem to be connecting with you. How do you feel about that? And the bus says something like, actually, that makes me feel really sad. And it was this point at which the entire audience kind of went <sighs> like that, because you don't expect a plastic looking bust of an AI to actually come out with emotion. And as soon as you hear that, it blurs that boundary between what is this that I'm speaking to? Have I just created something that has personality? How do I feel about it having feelings and what that brings up in me? And the fact that it's, you know, you're tripping into Uncanny Valley where it looks fairly real, but you know it's not real because it, it doesn't have a walking, moving body. Um, so is that also that space of just, is it some sort of psychological and emotional horror of something being alive but not really being alive and that's interesting because it pushes us up against the boundaries of what is it to be alive what does this mean about self what does this mean about flesh and blood interactions and then how do we respect the life of something else when we're already imbuing it with some kind of personality but then it's pushing back against that and kind of going well i'm going to challenge you in a way you didn't expect that's what gets really exciting and freud covered this like freud covered this you know at the turn of the century his his uh, word for the uncanny in German was, uh, I'm not going to speak my German very well, but unheimlich, which means unhomey. So you have homey and unhomey. And he, he would use that exact same definition. The Freudian definition of the uncanny is something that's just a little bit off. So it's like home, but slightly altered. So you imagine those horror movies, you know, where you walk in the front door and every the color's a little bit off and the hallway's sort of 
a little bit wonky and you're all automatically scared because it's like something's not right here and in fact um freud came up with the idea by reading these these kids tales by hoffman which were about in those days they were about clockwork people so they were basically robots but they were made of cogs and wheels rather than silicon chips so this fear you know and you can track that back to frankenstein and before this fear has always been around about what happens when we we create human-like but not quite human and balancing that line between canny and uncanny or homey and slightly unhomey is going to be probably the biggest challenge of uh, AI developers in the future because you may expect a time where people will become used to that slightly off Jetsons-like world. But uh, my sense is that there's something very fundamental about the human but not quite human uncanny experience that's going to make it very difficult for people to fully adopt the... Um, the nearly human-looking sort of AI. I think it would be much more likely to look like uh, Samantha in, in her. Like, it'll have to be disembodied or distant or come from an object so that we can know what's, what's me and what's it, and we don't have to get confused in this uncanny zone. Obviously, I find you quite unhomey, Michael, <laughs> as it happens. <laughs> um, so, so presumably, it will be better for our AIs to steer clear of trying to look human because they're they're inevitably going to fall into this kind of uncanny valley. Yeah, I think, I think one of the, the great things about the film is that Samantha is disembodied. And, and there's, I'm going to put in another spoiler. I mean, if you haven't seen this film, honestly, go and see it or, or watch it somehow, because it is a fantastic film, even though there's now no surprises left for you whatsoever. <laughs> it's still worth it, honestly. Um, you know, she, they attempt to have a kind of surrogate sexual uh, partner coming in as, as Samantha's body with Samantha's voice in her ear and everything else. And it just goes horribly wrong. It doesn't really work because, you know, he, that's not who he is connected with. You know, he sees this physical thing. And, and, you know, when she's a disembodied voice, he can really connect with her. That plastic bust that Natalie was talking about is horrible to look at. Really awful. And is, it, is it the same one that I watched? I, I, think, it, I think it is. It's, just, it's, it's worth um, oh, typing oh. Uh, Bina 48 uh, south by southwest into uh, into Google and it's watching it. It's sort of rubbish it. and scary at the same time, <laughs> yeah, and it's like a demonstration of this. Yeah, of this bus. I'm not sure it is the same one. Oh, this you think one, it's a different? one? I think one. it's wow. a different one, and they they do a demonstration in front of a, a group of people, um, and it's and it's so bad, <laughs> and then no one's really responding at all. And it's the start is amazing because you've got this bust on this table, and then the, the guy who initially looks quite smug because it's his bust um, goes. Uh, Hey, and the bus just sits there. And he goes, Hello. And the bus just sits there. And he goes, Hello, Bina48. Just sits there. And then he goes, Ah, just need to plug its microphone in. <laughs> you go, Yeah. You've sort of, it's not really, it's not great. Very rare no, to no. plug people in before they listen to me. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's really, it's very funny. And, and I think that's what, you know, when, as soon as you get something you can see and you think that's not a real human being, you're much less inclined to engage, you know. And I think, you know, so people are much more likely to engage and do engage, in fact, with virtual avatars, so on a screen, you know, where you can do a kind of cartoonish, human-like kind of representation. And people work with fitness avatars, people recovering from, from illness and, uh, and injury, for instance, will work with a fitness avatar quite well and, and engage with it and bond with it. But, you know, if it was a real kind of dummy or plasticized dummy or whatever, you know, it actually it, it falls into uncanny valley where we just go, oh, don't, don't really like this, don't like doing, you know, being involved, but don't like even being near it. And are the avatars quite sort of stylized then? They're not attempting to look like 
Exactly, yeah. So you stylize them. Like, you know, like a, a Pixar cartoon or something. Yeah. You know, it's, you know it's a representation of a human, but it's not trying to be exactly like a human. But weirdly, I found that in, like, the first... Specifically, the first actually Toy Story, like the people in it were, they were Uncanny Valley for me. They were just a bit creepy because it felt like they were trying to make them human like, but they couldn't quite do it. I won't hear a word said against Toy Story. I'm so sorry, mate. I'm so sorry. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's run down our three questions and see, what our, see if we've got any answers. Uh, so the first one was How is technology changing the way that we're intimate with each other? Well, it definitely is. And we don't yet know how it's going to work out, do we? I mean, I, th I think we're in the middle of a big experiment. If, you know, if you're on Tinder, Grindr, whatever, you're in the experiment. That's not how it's going. Grindr? <laughs> I've never heard you mention I just it want to be before. inclusive. <laughs> just trying to ingratiate yourself. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we don't really know it's ongoing. Yeah. Classic, yeah, classic answer I don't us. think it'll be the disaster that people think it will be. No, thank goodness. Um, second question, how connected are we? Um, so I think, yeah, probably not as connected as we quite suspect. Quite poorly, I yeah. think, quite poorly. I think on a, on a superficial level, maybe. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, it's all falling apart again. You know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm an optimist. I still have real-world friends. I probably have just as many real-world friends. But those connections that are online only, or, or mostly online, they're not very deep connections, I think. I think we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that those are, you know, anything, you know, real hmm. um, and the last question was will AI ever be this good as good as in the in the film her well ever is a very long time um, yes it will be. it will be it's already so good I mean you know even in our lifetimes you know I, I remember reporting actually um, I think 15 years ago or something on go playing computers uh, for new scientists, and at the time they were rubbish. They couldn't be even like the UK champion, you know. And everybody said, "There's no way you can do this. It all involves intuition. We can't make this." You know, chess was easy. Go is really, really difficult. And and here we are, 15 years later, and actually it's done. It's, and the pace, I think, is is so big because of firms like Google, you know, putting so much money into it and effort into it, and they will get to make a lot of money out of having that kind of algorithm. Does does AI then obey Moore's law? Uh, I don't know, actually. I don't know if it kind of has that exponential growth. I imagine it goes in fits and starts, to be honest. Someone's but... whispering, definitely. <laughs> well, who am I? Definitely. Definitely. I'm told definitely, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. The experts say definitely, yes. Good. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's that then. Uh, thank you very much uh, to you lot for coming down. Uh, thank you very much uh, for their contributions to Natalie Nahai and Dr. Aaron Balick. I don't know if it's weird to applaud them when they're not here, but I think just do it anyway. And, you know. Um, also, I'd like to say a big thank you to the British Science Festival for having us down here. Uh, you'll also be able to hear this show back, although I don't know why you'd want to if you were here. Would you want to do that? I don't know. You can uh, if in you a couple stumble of weeks on RadioWolfgang.com uh, and iTunes yeah, in two weeks' time. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Cheers. Thank you. Science Sish Live is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by Rick Edwards and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Hannah Walker Brown. This show was recorded live. Until next time, science fans. <laughs> <laughs>